Hey, welcome to the Magical History Tour podcast. In the last podcast, we set the stage for Columbus to appear. And so we're going to go ahead and continue on. So in 1476, Christopher Columbus, originally a sailor from Genoa, gradually develops the idea of opening a new route to the Indies by sailing west across the Atlantic Ocean, or at the time they called it the Western Sea. Now he tried to get backing from the current reigning monarchs of Europe, but they basically laughed him out of court and they said that his estimations were wrong. It was much further than he thought to get to Asia. They were actually right, but he didn't think so, so he just kept on. And finally, the monarchs of Castile and Aragon, Isabella and Ferdinand, will agree to finance him. They had just managed to end a centuries-long struggle between Catholics and Muslims that will end Muslim rule in Spain. So these new Catholic monarchs of Spain were looking for new lands to conquer. They saw the success of the Portuguese, and they wanted to open lucrative trade routes of their own to the Indies. So Columbus had commercial intentions, of course, but they also wanted to expand their empire. So you've got land intentions, and there's also the idea of missions. They wanted to convert people to Christianity. So there's lots of reasons for Columbus's venture. He leaves port in August of 1492, and if anyone's heard the little song, by October, they reach land. Um, So only a couple of months, and they hit land. And he's like, see, guys, it really didn't take that long to hit the Indies. Now, it actually turned out not to be the Indies. It was an island somewhere in the Bahamas. But Columbus believed he had reached the Indies and will always stick to that. He explores the northern coasts of Cuba and Hispaniola before he will go back to Spain. Now, when he returned to Spain, he returned with captive Native Americans from the Bahamas. He will note that they were intelligent, but he pointed out to the monarchs that they had no iron or steel weapons. And so he told the monarchs that all of the inhabitants could be made slaves if they wished. He also told them that there were many spices and great mines of gold and other metals. Now, he said this not because he had seen great mines of gold and other metals or that, you know, anything else, but he said this because he saw the little gold ornaments that the native population wore. They had earrings and different things like that. And so he assumed, and you know how that goes, that there was a lot of it on the island. Now, in fact, There was only a small quantity of precious metals that were in the riverbeds that these people had collected and made into jewelry. The spices, yes, there were lots of new spices, but they were nothing that the Europeans were familiar with. They weren't spices from the Indies, obviously. But he went with that, and that's what he told them. And before he left the islands, he had a crude fort built on Hispaniola, and he left a small force behind with them to keep a foothold, the foothold that Spain now had in the Americas. Now he gets back to Spain and the monarchs are really excited about this. They're really hoping to colonize. So they will send him back with 17 ships and about 1,500 men to begin colonization. They'll leave in 1493 and they had expectations that the native population was going to provide the labor for colonization. They would get them to build their homes and all of the buildings and set up their, you know, everything. Once they got back to the islands, however, they found that the fort that he had left was in ruins and his men had been killed by the natives who had lost patience with European demands. 
So in retaliation, the Spanish will destroy the nearby native villages, enslave the native population, and demand tribute and gold. He will send boatloads of slaves back to Spain. Most of them will sicken and die en route or when they get there shortly thereafter. The gold supply will run out very quickly. And two, the Catholic priests will quickly tell Isabella, hey, it's really not morally right to enslave the native population. So that's going to end Columbus's ideas of using them for slaves in Spain. Now, he made several additional trips to the Caribbean, each time raiding for slaves and obsessively searching for gold. He will die in Spain in 1506, and he always believed that he had opened the way to the Indies by discovering the outlying parts of Asia. Now, other people began to realize that, in fact, he had discovered what they would consider to be a new world. And it was Amerigo Vespucci, who traveled to the Caribbean in 1499, who get credit as being the first to describe it as a new world. Now, when European geographers will finally name the continent in the 16th century, they're going to honor Vespucci's insights by calling it America. The Spanish might have been interested in trading in the Indies, but in 1493, they're going to be barred from it. At that time, Spain and Portugal were having some major conflicts. So to avoid further conflict, the Pope will get involved. And at this time in history, um, the Pope was very much influential politically, and all the major monarchs were Catholic, and so the Pope gets involved, and in what they call intercaterra, he will divide all of the world's lands that are not in the actual possession of a Christian king or prince between Spain and Portugal. So he basically split the globe in half and said, Portugal, you get this side, Spain, you get this side, stay on your sides. Now, obviously there were countries in each of their halves that were already there, you know, Britain and other places. He didn't mean those. He just meant any land that was not currently in the possession of a Christian king or a prince, but they could claim anything in their half that was like that. So because of this Pope doing this, all of Asia and Africa was off limits to Spain, but they did receive the Americas in their portion. So this is going to lead them to focus on the Americas throughout exploration and further development of their American empire. Now, within one century of Columbus's death, the Spanish had created a huge and very wealthy empire in the Americas. Spain will rule it from across the ocean, which was kind of hard sometimes, kind of difficult, kind of tedious. A caste system was created wherein a small minority of settlers and their offspring controlled the lives and labor of millions of Native American and African workers. But it was also a society where colonists, Native Americans, and Africans will mix and form new groups of people. However, the first stages of the Spanish invasion of the Americas included a lot of violence. Armies will march across the Caribbean islands, they plundered villages, they slaughtered people, they captured people. Columbus and his successors will also establish something called encomienda. Encomienda was originally a land-grant system, and that's where Spanish officers were awarded large parcels of land that were basically taken from the native population. It's also a system in which the native population was forced to labor in the service of Spanish lords. Now, it's supposed to be a reciprocal relationship. They would labor for the Spanish. The Spanish, in turn, would, quote, protect them from their enemies, 
but it turns out that really their enemies were kind of the Spanish. <laughs> so it didn't work out very well. It's not really a reciprocal relationship. And they basically were treated as slaves. So Encomienda is going to lead to a society of extremes, the extremely rich landowners and the extremely poor everyone else. An explorer by the name of Hernán Cortés had heard rumors of Tenochtitlan and of Aztec riches, and he decides he's going to go to the mainland and check it out. So he landed in what he named eventually Veracruz with armed troops in 1519. Now he sent word of his arrival back to Cuba, and he called for reinforcements. He then turned around and burned the rest of the ships that had brought them to Mexico. So his men had no choice but to continue on. It was going to be conquer or die for the soldiers. There's no third option of, hey, I guess I'll just wait back here on the ship with you and make sure the ship's okay, because they burned them. So almost immediately, of course, they were attacked by a group of coastal natives called the Tabascans, and the Spanish easily defeated the natives with their cannon, their horses, their dogs. They only lost two men in the fight. Cortez then very intelligently makes a generous peace offering. He offered the Tabascans an alliance against their tribal enemies. They're like, we, will, we won't take you over. We won't do anything. We'll just, we just want you to stand with us against the Aztecs. What he does is he exploits that resentment that many of these tribes had. These native people lived under Aztec domination, and they don't like the Aztec. So he does this with every native group that he confronts as he marches closer and closer to Tenochtitlan, and they all will join him against the hated Aztec. Now, Aztec religion is also going to serve the purposes of Cortez. There was a legend that held that a fair-skinned, red-haired deity named Quetzalcoatl, and I probably butchered that name, but this god would one day come from the east to rule Mexico. Now, Cortez came from the east. He was fair-skinned. He was Spanish. He had red hair. And Montezuma II, who was, if you recall, the leader of the Aztec at the time, feared that Cortez was this god. So... Cortez is sitting there thinking, okay, how am I going to get onto the island? How am I going to attack the Aztec? Got to figure this out. He gets there and basically he reaches the city on November 8th of 1519 and he is welcomed inside because Montezuma didn't quite know what to do. Do we attack? Do we not? If he's the god that we've been waiting for, that would not be a good idea. So let's just see. So they welcome him in. He's kind of no, he's kind of surprised, but he's sort of he's like, I'm gonna go with this. So he goes with it. They get into the city. Um, they're made much of, and eventually he will take the emperor hostage. And Aztec nobles will very quickly awaken to the fact that the Spaniards were less than divine. Cortez will immediately order a stop to all human sacrifices. He was horrified, uh, but this is the heart of Aztec belief. And when the Spaniards then later find a, a store of jewels, precious stones, silver and gold, Cortez actually told Montezuma that, and I quote, I and my companions suffer from a disease of the heart, which can be cured only with gold. Uh-huh. So the Aztec realize these guys aren't gods, and they rebel. 
and Cortez and his men barely managed to fight their way out of the city. Around half the Spaniards in the city were killed, and it's actually greed that destroyed them, because although their lives were in the balance, the Spaniards insisted on trying to carry as much treasure as they could with them as they retreated. So they were trying to carry like eight tons of treasure, and that slowed them down, and a lot of them were killed. Now, after the Spanish regroup and attack again, they're eventually able to take control of the city. It took some time. The Aztec were very formidable warriors, but the thing that allowed the Spanish to actually eventually take over was disease. The Aztec began succumbing to smallpox, which is something that they had never been in, you know, had any kind of contact with. And so once the Spanish are able to take the weakened Aztec, they'll plunder Aztec society. And that will provide the Catholic monarchs with unimaginable wealth. Now, though the native population does resist Spanish conquest, most of them will prove a poor match for men on horseback with steel weapons. You did have Europeans who protested the horrors of the conquests. One of these was Bartolomé de las Casas. He was a priest, and he was a very outspoken one. He claimed that the Christian mission was to convert the natives to Christianity, not to destroy them. He said that the Spaniards treated the natives worse than beasts were treated. In fact, he said that they were treated, and I quote, like the excrement in a plaza. Now, some of what he wrote was possibly overdramatized a little bit because he was, first and foremost, a propagandist. He wanted to make his point, and he did. But this is a time of chilling indifference to human suffering on everyone's part, really. Las Casas wrote a history of the conquest called The Destruction of the Indies, and this book was published, and in it, he blamed the Spanish for genocide. Um, it was a widely circulated book, and it was used by other European nations who were really kind of less successful in their colonization attempts, at least at first, and they didn't like that, so they decided to condemn Spain, and they used the book to do so. Now, he's actually not far from wrong in the numbers. He will estimate the losses in population for the native populations, and he's pretty spot on, but he is wrong in his attributions. He attributed most of the losses to warfare, and while warfare was one of the ways that, that native tribes were killed off, many of them do die in battle, but many more starved because their economies were destroyed or their food stores were taken. Also, the native birth rate will fall significantly after conquest because Native American women were too overworked. They didn't want to have children and bring children into this world that they were having so many hardships in. So you do have a significant decline in the birth rate. Now, of course, the primary cause of the population reduction was epidemic disease. The flu, plague, smallpox, measles, typhus. Now, obviously, the New World isn't disease-free. It's not this, you know, pristine place. They did have diseases, but they had immunities to some of those. But they had, and they had things like hepatitis, they had arthritis, they had polio, they had tuberculosis, but they didn't have diseases of epidemic potential in their society because these things that were coming over, they didn't have the antibodies necessary to protect them from these European germs. 
And so disease is going to be the secret weapon that sort of explains the success of the Spanish conquest. All of those things, warfare, disease, declining birth rate, starvation, all of those things will knock the native population of the Americas into a downward spiral. And really sadly, it doesn't begin to swing upward until the beginning of the 20th century. Now, by that time, the native population had fallen by 90%. It's considered to be the greatest demographic disaster in world history. Now, the passage of diseases and crops and people and all of these things between the old and the new worlds is going to be one of the most important aspects of the continental exchange that marks the beginning of modern world history. It's called a biological exchange. It's also sometimes called the Columbian exchange because it really began with Columbus's first voyage. Many diseases for which Europeans and Africans and Asians had developed immunities were unknown to the native population, as I mentioned. Therefore, the effects of these diseases was catastrophic. Things like, like I said, measles, smallpox, whooping cough, chickenpox, a mild form of influenza. Now, in return, the native population does pass along different diseases to the sailors, who will in turn bring them back to Europe. One of those examples was syphilis and other venereal diseases. Syphilis was first identified by physicians in 1493 in Cadiz, Spain, which is the port where Columbus returned after his first voyage. It will then travel to Naples, oddly enough, where several of Columbus's crewmen were reported to have gone, and from there it will spread very quickly. It followed the trade routes. Now, Europeans, Africans, and Asians will react to syphilis the same way the native population reacted to some of the diseases brought over by the Europeans. Symptoms were severe, and death was quick. About 10 million people died of syphilis within the 15 years of Columbus's voyage in Europe. You also had an influx into Europe of precious metals that had been taken from the Aztec and the Incan empires. The gold was melted down and Spanish silver mine finds will lead to runaway inflation, which is going to stimulate commerce and raise profits. So that sounds really good, but actually it will overall lower the standard of living for most people in Europe. Now, new world crops that were brought to Europe, there were lots. Obviously, corn and potatoes will help to end the persistent famine in Europe, the miracle crops. There were also new tropical crops like tobacco introduced. Tobacco was actually first introduced as a cure for disease, but later it's going to be used as a stimulant. Vanilla, chocolate, and cotton were also tropical crops that were sent to the old world. The new world, in turn, will get things like sugar and rice and coffee. Uh, Columbus will also introduce domesticated animals, including livestock, to the new world. Horses, specifically, were introduced, and that is going to change the lives of many Native American groups. A lot of times, however, these things that are coming over with the Europeans and going back with them, they don't realize, kind of like disease at first, they don't realize that they're bringing these diseases that are causing all these Native Americans to die and vice versa. What they don't realize is that even things like animals will affect it. We'll see later that when the English come to the Americas, they'll bring with them rats from the ships and the rats will kind of overrun Virginia and 
they'll walk around in a field in Europe and seeds from different things, you know, plants and things will get on them in the heel of their boot or something. And they'll unknowingly carry it all the way. Then it'll dislodge itself when they're in the new world and new plants will grow. And these new plants will be different and they might affect the ecology differently. One really good example that I like to read to my students is from a book called Ecological Imperialism. It's by a man named Alfred W. Crosby. And it's just a little part, but it's interesting because He's talking about when the Portuguese settled the Azores and a man by the name of Bartholomew Perestrello, he was actually the future father-in-law of Columbus. He gets to this island and he's, and I quote, set loose on his island where the likes of such had never lived before, a female rabbit and her offspring. She had given birth on the voyage from Europe. The rabbits reproduced at a villainous rate and overspread the land so that our men could sow nothing that was not destroyed by them. The settlers took up arms against these rivals and killed great numbers, but in the absence of local predators and disease organisms adapted to those quadrupeds, the death rate continued to lag far behind the birth rate. The humans were obliged to leave and go to Madeira, defeated in their initial attempt at colonization, not by primeval nature, but by their own ecological ignorance." Later, they tried again and succeeded, but even so, in 1455, it was noted that Porto Santo still swarmed with countless rabbits. And Europeans make lots of these mistakes. They do it again. They had population explosions of burrows and the Canaries, rats in Virginia, as I mentioned, and of course, rabbits in Australia, people know about already. So... That's just an example. If you've ever seen The Simpsons, there's an episode where Bart goes to Australia, I think, and he brings a frog and he sets it loose and then they have this huge frog problem and it's it's very similar because they don't really realize that this intercontinental exchange is going to possibly negatively affect things or just affect things in general. Now, the Spanish have, despite ecological issues occasionally, the Spanish will have a powerful empire in the Americas. And only one century after Columbus, there were 250,000 European immigrants, primarily Spanish, who had settled in the Americas, while another 125,000 Africans had been forcibly settled there as slaves. Now, Spanish women do come to the New World as early as the second expedition. Their numbers made up only about 10% of the immigrants. Most male colonists married or lived with native or African women, resulting in the growth of large mixed-race groups, People who were part Spanish, part European, and part Native American were called mestizos. And people who were part European and part African were known as mulattoes. The mestizo and mulatto groups, especially the mestizo group, become the majority population on the mainland Spanish-American empire. These new world colonies of Spain make up one of the largest empires in the history of the world. Now, while the Spanish had a pretty impressive empire in the 16th century, other European seafaring states begin to look at the new world with interest. France will attempt to plant colonies at first on the coasts of Brazil and Florida, but the Spanish opposition led them to eventually concentrate on the North Atlantic. The English didn't formulate a plan to colonize North America until the second half of the 16th century. And in the next podcast, we'll be talking about the French and the English explorations as we continue our magical history tour.
Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like it, recommend it to a friend. We'll see you next time.